They're like buzzards circling our people. We're still warriors. Hi, welcome to Bond Squad Matinee, episode number 12. Uh, I'm your host and master of ceremony, Tanner Richard Craft, and with me I have... Hi, I'm Austin Zwiebelman. And for the first time since, now correct me if I'm wrong, since Catch Me If You Can, it's the Tanner and Austin Show. It's going to be a classic episode of the Austin and Tanner Show, just like our early episode on Judas and the Black Messiah, which is currently <laughs> sitting pretty at a whopping 93 views. Uh, we're talking about something really heavy today, just like we were then. People love it when we talk about heavy subjects. That's why our episodes about Top Gun Maverick and Catch Me If You Can got so many views. Sorry, I'm excited to be back with you, Tanner. Love the Austin, or love the Tanner and Austin show. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, if you can't judge by the fact that I said we're talking about heavy subject matter, and you also are illiterate, I guess, and you didn't read the title of the video, we're discussing the newest Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, released in theaters in November, and finally released to Apple TV Plus on January 12th. It's uh. We're not going to have a warm-up question. We're not going to have uh, thoughts on the movie overall, though maybe we will. I don't know. I think since it's just Austin and I, and given the subject matter, I, I we both thought it would probably be best to just launch into it. Uh, so, Austin, you have something to say? Yeah, I should have told you about this in the preliminary, but I was wondering <laughs> if I could just do a little bit of table setting beforehand. Please, you- I encourage it. All right, excellent. Okay, so... This is Killers of the Flower Moon, directed by Martin Scorsese, based off the 2017 book Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI by David Grant C. Tanner for a visual. It's sort of a huge deal because it's a Scorsese picture. If you're dumb, you'll know Martin Scorsese is the guy who called Marvel movies theme park rides and uh, invented 4chan terrorists back in the 1970s with Taxi Driver. Uh, But true patrician cinephiles know him as the voice actor for Sykes in the 2004 movie Shark Tale. He has been nominated for the Best Director Oscar nine times. In that respect, he is tied with Steven Spielberg. But the actual important background I wanted to give is about the subject of the movie, of the Osage Reign of Terror. So let's start at the beginning. So back like... 1,200 years before Jesus died, the Osage noticed that the Iroquois were being dicks, and so they migrated west. Flash forward 2,900 years, the Osage are chilling out with the French trading in the early 1720s. Little did they know that in 1776, a bunch of very racist dudes from across the Atlantic were going to decide they live here now. On this land that's already heavily populated by people who are very much not white. 27 years later, the Louisiana Purchase happens, and by 1808, the U.S. government coerced the Osage into signing away 53 million acres of their ancestral land in exchange for $1,200 cash and $1,500 in merch. Then there were two more dog shit treaties after that, ending with a whopping 96.8 million acres taken by these white people. Lots of Osage were getting murdered and dunked on by the Americans at this time, so it's kind of like a hostage situation that was resolved by the hostage agreeing to give away his house. Anyway, after the Osage gave away Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma, the Osage were stuck hanging out in Kansas, where a fair amount of them became Catholic because a few priests stuck by them through a smallpox epidemic 
Around 1868, a bunch of white settlers were like murder raping the Osage so hard that the Osage actually resorted to asking the U.S. military for help. And naturally, that didn't happen. And so the Osage decided to sell their lands in Kansas for a dollar and 25 cents per acre. Uh, but that price was knocked down to 25 cents per acre because the white people said they had a coupon at checkout. Uh, so after this, the Osage purchased their forever home, a 1.5 million acre reservation in north central Oklahoma. The land was dog shit and 50% of the Osage died, uh, mostly from starvation. But on the bright side, the Osage retained mineral rights on this land because they literally bought the place from the U.S. government, which is not normally how that went down. So in 1894, when somebody discovered there was a metric buckload of oil hidden beneath this barren, shitty land, things actually started to look up for the Osage. The Osage allowed people to, like, lease their land and drill the oil, uh, but they had to pay the Osage royalties. Every member of the Osage Nation was given a share of the Osage Mineral Estate, uh, known as a head right, uh, with 2,229 shares dealt out in total. The annual total payout for one head right in 1924 was $12,000, which is $200,000 in 2024 movie, 2024 Damn. money. The Osage became the richest people per capita on the face of the planet. The U.S. government, who, mind you, had spent the last 145 years hoping to genocide the Native Americans, threw up their hands and said, wait, that's illegal. In 1921, Congress passed a law where the Osage required a guardian to spend their own money unless they were less than 49% Osage by blood. These guardians were either random white dudes appointed by white courts or white people that the Osage married. This created a system where the Osage often had to marry white people so they could get permission to spend their own money, and uh, the white people in this equation stood to make a shitload of money inheriting that family's head rights when, let's say, something bad happened. And all this amounted to a statewide conspiracy to befriend and then murder Osage people. Some of the murderers privately called it the Indian business. Thank you for your patience, Tanner. I'm done. And that part of the um, how uh, a lot of native, a lot of the Osage people needed to marry white people in order to get access to their money, I think is especially crucial for this movie because I I love this movie. I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. That does seem to be a detail that the movie almost... It does address it, but it doesn't address it very explicitly. So I've noticed some people have been missing that detail, and I think it's crucial to understanding the movie. Because at the core of this movie, to me, to me, the absolute core of this movie is... While it is about the murders, the primary lens it is explored through unlike the book in which it is primarily explored through the lens of Tom White and the creation of the FBI, this one is primarily explored through the relationship of Ernest Burkhart and Molly Burkhart. Leonardo okay, Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone. Yeah, uh, the, the character who uh, was talked about the least in the book, Ernest Burkhart, I, I had the pleasure of listening to the whole audiobook over the last couple of days, and it had to be a lot of work to do this from Ernest's perspective, just to connect that web and tell this like it's a normal narrative and everything. Also, 
Yeah, controversial decision, because uh, Scorsese, he's kind of like, um, his career has been stuff like Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, where he makes these movies that are sometimes controversial, because they're kind of like glorifying the bad guys, whereas this is a slightly different spin on that, more akin to The Irishman, uh, where it's not glorifying the bad guys at all, but you're stuck with them the whole time. <laughs> yeah, late, late period Scorsese makes these movies, these long, long fucking movies, when you're stuck with him, when you're stuck with these abhorrent people and there's no glamour to it. Uh, the Irishman, Robert De Niro's character uh, loses everything, loses his family, loses everyone that loves him, goes to prison, goes home. He becomes a shell of a human being. And in this movie, our main character, the Leonardo DiCaprio character, um, how do I phrase this? Is a moron? Just just absolute fucking salt-of-the-earth, redneck, idiot trash. I didn't know if I even liked the performance. It's a very consistent performance, so I understand on, like, a technical level, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. I think I just hate the character so much. It's an odd position for a movie to put you in. Uh, you're stuck with this guy who's very insufferable. And it's, it's also this really interesting commentary on, like, yeah, the banality of evil. Uh, because he's being evil for very stupid reasons. Like, off-the-charts levels of evil. Like, kill his own family evil. And he'll have these lines like, I like money, you know? Like, he's... Uh, excuse me, I want to make sure we get that right. It's, well, I do like that money, sir. <laughs> it, it really it really does highlight how casual the white supremacy was back in the day. Uh, that these people would form these elaborate, what, like, murder networks. And they're just like, yeah, because I, ma I make a quick buck off of it. Beats working. Like, that's their reason for, like, blowing people up and killing babies. Is is Beats so, working. While Ernest Burkhart's character is a abhorrent, evil, irredeemable human being, mm -hmm. I think where Leonardo DiCaprio's strength shines is that, at least for me, the entire time, the entire time, you are screaming at the screen, begging, begging, please, Ernest, do the right thing. Please. Because Leo, for better or for worse, humanizes him in a way that uh, uh, William K. Hale, Robert De Niro's character, is an abhorrent, irredeemable monster that is unapologetic about it. You sense... Rem tense, little tinsels of remorse and regret throughout Leo's performance. He feels hesitant about this whole scheme and borderline, I feel sympathetic for him because like he's so stupid. I don't know if he's actually fit to make decisions for himself. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame he fell into the orbit of this like famously charismatic man who uh, where all he wanted to do was murder an entire family worth of people he uh he does he lacks moral fiber. This is one of those important yeah. like types of stories. You hear this a lot in um like grade school, middle school kids always ask uh when they look back on like, you know, Nazi Germany and stuff, they're like, how did all these people just kind of live their lives knowing that just like in the town over there were these camps with the with the body smoke coming out? And the thing is that these conditions are sort of created um, one, you can defer to authority. Like, he, he was scared of Hale, and he could always kind of lean on Hale. That's one of the big things. But also, it's just sort of like, 
if a whole society starts going along with it, uh, especially, like, if it's legal to do this kind of discrimination, uh, like, what, it, what is it, in the book? I can't remember if this is in the movie, uh, but somebody says, like, you'd have an easier time convicting somebody of kicking a dog than killing a Native American uh, in, this, in this time. And it's, uh, it's, it's sort of that, like, this, um, slowly, like, like a frog that's getting boiled in a pot of water, slowly all of this, like, racism just becomes normalized to this point where you can have these people who are doing these things that, like, now you'd assume would require some, like, super genius anime villain levels of evil, but they're doing it barely without thinking of, of anything. Like, they're, they're doing it because they're dim and apathetic. It's, it's easier to slide in. Yeah. And I think how stupid it all is is perfectly shown once the FBI does get involved. They solve it in like two weeks. Which which is not not a proper representation of what happened. But if for the film, it works really well because it, it shows to you like Hale um, managed to buy the entire state of Oklahoma. That's sort of like the impression that you get is he was master of his domain. He had paid off all the judges, all the cops. He oriented himself perfectly. What just needed to happen was no one from any other states could give a shit. Because the second somebody from outside of that little bubble he had perfect control of gave a shit, he was so audacious about his crimes. Like you have um, De Niro blows up a house with three people in it. And um, the, one of his, like, lackeys who knows that he's doing all this is like, Bill, you're pronouncing yourself a bit much. And so it's really cathartic when Jesse Plemons' character comes in because you know he's going to catch this guy. This guy's like the mustache-twirling doofus riding off in the hot air balloon, making fun of our underdog, the cartoon underdog, thrown in an underdog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's... It's, it's really bad, and it's nice to see it get knocked over really, really quickly the second that somebody with morals steps into the situation. Yeah. From what I understand, it, it took the actual FBI longer than, like, two weeks to solve it. But it was still, like, a, a relatively quick investigation once you, like... Because, really, I think the movie makes this obvious, and I, I know in real life it was a little more complicated. All someone had to do was fucking look. <laughs> Because of what you said, they weren't really hiding it that well to begin with. All anybody had to do was fucking look. Yeah, a lot of people were able to do their crimes in plain sight because it was this group that the U.S. had been trying to genocide off the map who suddenly struck rich. Uh, so in that very particular kind of environment, it's easy to topple these, you know, like like just do a bunch of, you know, hate crimes no one's gonna like stop you no one's gonna look too hard um what is it this movie reminds me a lot of the irishman uh because it's also three and a half hours uh it doesn't have any of that like goodfellas era flashy camera work and and, and for me it flies by this and the irishman both fly by for me that stated it is carefully engineered to bum you out all the violence Absolutely. is really matter of fact the the villains aren't portrayed as cool people with redeeming qualities I think Lily Gladstone does an incredible job of making you yes. feel like you're actually watching this horrible bullshit happen to a real person right in front of you. When her character was first introduced, this is a three and a half hour movie. I'm getting settled into a theater. You know, uh, it's got some like stature about it. And I'm like, 
how is how are any of these people gonna make this entertaining and for some reason her like kind of quiet dignity like the way she's sort of knowing when she talks but very understated i was immediately kind of hooked on it in that scene where she's talking to that guy um asking look, explaining the money that her mother spent it hooked me pretty quickly lily gladstone's performance yeah you kind of yeah you get pretty immediately hooked in with her to me she is the heart and soul of the movie obviously if I, I think the movie is a masterwork across the board, but if I were to point to any one thing that is the best part about this movie, it would be Lily Gladstone's performance. I think she is simply incredible, stupendous. I think she totally dominates every scene she's in, and I do think she's a lead. I remember when this movie was coming out, we all thought it'd be a supporting uh, performance. I think it's very clear she's a leading performance in this movie, and uh, there's been a lot of, I think, misogynistic criticism of her performance being mostly her laying in bed. She, she's laying in bed for like five minutes total of screen time in the movie. She's poisoned for a fair amount of like the second 80 minute chunk of the movie. There is a good amount of her like actually being confined to a bed because she's being poisoned by her husband. Like, don't get me wrong. That's true. Mm, sorry, excuse me. But see, I actually, even I actually in those disagree. scenes, she dominates. Oh, okay. I actually disagree that it's a lead. I think I think the only person who's slated to be a lead here by screen time is Leo DiCaprio. I think she's important. I, I think she's a, a central like character to the drama and everything, just like DiCaprio. But I think this is uh sort of like like in a in a total bastard move told through the prism of Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, he is he is kind of the the thing everything rotates around as far as like the amount of screen time he has, uh, the way that it unfolds, like the the drama and stuff. I would say Lily Gladstone's a supporting just because Scorsese has decided to be a fucking dick. In fact, I think when I got out of this movie, uh, the first thing my husband said was like, "It would be more interesting if this was told <laughs> more from Lily Gladstone's perspective." For what it's worth. For what it's worth, uh, you're wrong, and here's why. Mm -hmm. When the Oscar nominations are announced tomorrow, she will be nominated in leading actress. That's fair. Now, now I, I gotta I gotta say this. I'd be lying if I said I was excited to revisit this one. Uh for the show. Oh, it's so heavy. Watch number two for me. I saw it in theaters right when it came out. This is watch number two. Killers is a tough pill to swallow, partially because the movie spends like 80 minutes in the middle just making you watch bad guys get away with murder over and over again. But I guess it's all worthwhile because wallowing in all that misery makes it really gratifying when the FBI shows up. In one of the year's most inspired casting decisions, Jesse Plemons, known for playing a terrifying psychos in movies such as Date Night, uh, Breaking Bad, the trailer for Civil War, and Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon takes all this intimidating freak energy uh, that he's putting off, and it says, "We're gonna let this dude loose on some bad guys. Watch out! Here he comes!" Like it's nice to see that kind of reversal, where Jesse Plemons is just like the fucking um, Sean Connery in in that one crime movie Brian De Palma made. <laughs> He's a super yeah. cop. <laughs> yeah, no, literally. Uh, I think maybe the most memorable scene of the movie, at least in terms of like, you can quote about it later, is when he goes to Ernest Burkhout's door and is like, we're sitting here to Washington to see about these murders. We'll see what about these murders. See who's doing them. <laughs> I just love his delivery of, we'll see who's doing them, is so pitch fucking perfect. 
did you notice on your rewatch, I thought this was kind of fun, because um, that 80-minute portion uh, where they just, it's dread and misery, um, right when he shows up, right around the two-hour mark, two hours and three minutes, I think, um, is like a huge reversal of fortune, uh, cause then you get the scene of Robert De Niro having the insurance guy saying, like, I don't know, this insurance scam you're doing with Henry Rowan seems like it's not gonna work out. Like, they kind of, like, they keep you in the cage for so long, and the second he shows up, it just really leans hard on that thing you were talking about, where it's like, oh, this shit's gonna crumble quickly the second someone serious looks at it. I cannot get De Niro out of my mind saying, I want my Henry Rome money. Henry Rome money. I want my Henry Rome. He, it's literally like with the same cadence of at Walmart. I want my refund. I want my Henry Rome money at the Walmart Super Center. <laughs> he's, such a, he's such a fucking bastard. We need more movies about, uh, y yeah, a small town uh, that is polluted by crime. Uh, where somebody comes in and just topples all the local bastards. I love this shit. He's like a samurai. No, I'm all for it. He's like a samurai, but he works for one of the most evil men in the history of America. Fuck you, Hoover. Piece of shit. I'm glad they kept him out in the movie. Uh, them dr name dropping J. Edgar Hoover like gave me a jump scare because I like the entirety of J. Edgar starring Leonardo DiCaprio played in my head, and I went, no, no, no. <laughs> They they just cut. It's it's a it's a de-aged Leo with Irishman face. Uh, he's in Washington and he's just like this teapot dome scandal's real bad for us. The bureau needs to be reinvented asap. <laughs> um, I think the movie as a whole. What I really love about it is how, is clearly just how much the uh, Osage tribe was consulted in the making of this. Because I think the stuff, I think the movie as a whole is stellar, but every time it gets into Osage stuff, I think it excels. One of the, to me, most horrifying, heartbreaking scenes in a movie this year is when Lily's mom dies. And there's that scene where she has the vision of, like, those Osage people welcoming, him, welcoming her to the afterlife. Yeah. I thought that was so heartbreaking and beautiful. Um. Oh, geez. Uh, I'm crying a little. Um, it's, it's, mission failed. I told myself I wasn't going to cry, and I failed. It's one of the most beautiful moments in movies of this whole year. I was not expecting it. Uh, they managed to make present day so oppressive for the Osage that the idea that there is some escape where they can go to this place where they can be with their tribe in peace is just a really beautiful fucking idea. And um, they, they do that thing where it's just silence, you know? I Like, I, I haven't taken, like, a really close mix of, uh, look at the sound mix. But it has this eerie kind of silence about it. I will never forget seeing that in theaters for the first time. It, it's still kind of a showstopper, even when you know it's coming. It, it takes your breath away. It takes your breath away. And that ties into something deeper. One of the things I noticed when watching this movie... Uh, every time there's a funeral, the movie opens arguably with an Osage funeral, and it's a oh the a high pretty person. yeah it opens with a funeral and it's a pretty full throated Osage affair like it is unapologetically Osage yeah every funeral after that you notice that in the crowds of these funerals and it's the same with the baby naming ceremonies too that there are less and less Osage people at these things more and more white people at these things and the baby naming ceremony stays relatively the same at least culturally 
the funerals by the end, it's just it's indistinguishable from a Catholic funeral. Yeah. It's identical. There's nothing uniquely Osage about it at all by the end. Like when Ernest's daughter dies, just a little baby coffin, you know? That's a that's and... a really tragic background detail. Holy shit. I, I actually didn't take note of that. That owns. Yeah, no, it's something I noticed that in my first viewing, and you noticed it even more in your second viewing, at least for me, was how much the white people infiltrate every walk of life, specifically because Hale, Hale, listen. Even though he was making it absurdly obvious what he was doing, it wasn't obvious because he was stupid. It was obvious because he correctly realized that, again, as long as nobody serious took a look, that he would face no consequences. Mm -hmm. That it would be impossible for him to face consequences. He was so flippant about it that he basically ingrained himself with the Osage people. There's this scene in the movie where the Osage tribe has a meeting and it's like, these white folks, they are killing us for our money. We have offered this reward for any information about the murders. And then Hale just lumps in with a, I'm added a thousand dollars to that bounty. And then what he says here, it's so fucking telling. What he says here is, so if anyone has any information, you come to me. Yep. It's so blatant. And then they thank him. They thank him. You you know, what's weird is uh, the book gives slightly more detail about what Hale did to get so ingratiated. The movie kind of speed runs this. Like, he speaks the language. He shows up at all the shit. He knows everybody's names. Uh, In real life, Hale, I think what happened was he got rich before the Osage got rich. And so he paid for certain things in town that were important, like hospitals and schools. Uh, Because he just made money slightly before they did, I think. One thing I uh, from the book that kind of struck me was Hale is a demon. Hale showed up out of nowhere one day. He just kind of showed up in town and no one ever figured out what his past was. He drifted in on a breeze like some kind of fucking demon. And I thought that was very strange. Um, but yeah, that, that was one of the reasons real life people were like kind of willing to overlook Hale uh, was because he actually did a lot of stuff to kind of like uh, build the infrastructure of the community. Uh, but... Yeah, it was also just the fact that um, he paid off all the lawmen, so every time that they did something illegal, any traces of it that would be essential to solving the crime were just fucking disposed of. It also didn't help that the town's two doctors, they're like two most prolific doctors, were on his side, taking fucking making bullets disappear out of murder victims and shit. Fuck the Schoen brothers. There's, there's a very specific moment when the FBI goes to the doctors and they're asking about the murder of Anna Brown. Right. Yeah. And they're all like, so like, why'd you chop her up into a bunch of little pieces? And they like laugh and go, well, to find the bullet, of course. When like, no, that doesn't fucking make sense. By the way, those Schoen brothers uh, got off without any justice being served. No prison time, nothing. We can talk about this. Nobody really faces any justice in this movie, regardless of your uh, opinion of the criminal justice system. They sort of scapegoat Hale. Hale is kind of uh, like the thing. But Hale still gets out. That's true. Yeah, the uh, the ending of the movie uh, does really want to hammer home that um, for the level of crime these people did, they do not even remotely, remotely face equivalent justice. Like maybe 0.01% of equivalent justice. They murdered entire families. Entire fucking families were murdered. And Hale gets off 
early. He gets to leave his life sentence on probation because he was, quote, a good prisoner. And then he's never supposed to step foot in the state of Oklahoma. But let's be real. He did. And I thought it was just so very telling that he died at 81 in Arizona. Uh, but for me, the most powerful part of that whole ending is they tell you about like Ernest died at 87. William K. H. William K. Hale died at 81. All these people lived long, long lives. And Molly died before she turned 50. Diabetes. Ernest lived in the into the 50s. Hale lived into the 50s. By the time Molly died, I don't even think the United States had don't joined World War II in earnest. I don't even know if World War II had started in earnest yet. Uh, I would need to look at the day Molly died off the top of my, uh, I don't know it off the top of my head. And this ties back into, speaking of Molly, the last scene before that whole true crime thing, which by the way, that true whole true crime scene is brilliant. It perfectly like, it's like Scorsese holding his own feet to the fire to be like, these people were brutalized over time and time and time again. And all we ever seem to be able to do is make movies about it, exploiting it further. And here I am doing it too. Which is why he cast himself in that final speaking part, I think. Yeah. It's to skewer himself somewhat, as I right, rightfully, he probably should. Even though, like I said, he clearly consulted the Osage tribe. It's, a, it's an interesting ethical question. Even if you have perfect consent of the tribe, even if you get their, you know, you you um blessing. consult with them, their blessing, is it is it ever really your right to tell this story? I don't know. Um, I didn't know if I liked the ending at first. So again, I read the book and I was surprised. Get this. Chapter 22 comes along and it shifts into something called Chronicle 3. Like a third section after the Osage side of the story and then the second section about Tom White trying to solve the case while he was working at the FBI. It was the section about David Gran, the, the journalist who wrote the book, actually meeting the living descendants of some of the Osage who were murdered. He figures out that the FBI case that took down Hale actually failed to catch most of the bad guys. Like, there were other killers in town. Some of Right, whom, that was a big deal with the book, right? Some of whom... I remember that... The, wasn't it the journalist that discovered that the FBI didn't even get most of them, right? Dig this. There were some of these people who were associated with Hale, like, in tight with him. Like, there was this local bank dickhead named H.G. Birch. And uh, some people who were just after head rights, like this lady named Hattie Whitehorn, who totally got away with murder. And uh, the FBI agents even assumed, they were like, this Burt guy's a murderer, but it kind of fucked with the FBI's whole, like, convenient, Hale is the super genius mastermind at the center of it all narrative. So that dude and countless other people never saw an ounce of punishment. Well, yeah, because, like, the FBI, this was their, th this case created the FBI. Um, they needed a PR win to prove that our tax dollars should continue to fund the FBI so they can later assassinate Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and Fred Hampton, of course. Mm -hmm. We're going to get demoted. We're going to get so many hate comments because I said that. The FBI definitely killed Hampton. There's not a lot of proof that they had anything to do with MLK. I thought that MLK's family, like, won a court case about how the FBI killed MLK. <laughs> Oh yeah, they they did, didn't they? They were pretty. Remember that? Remember that tweet from Jabuki that made him lose his verified sticker, where he <laughs> said he pretended to be the FBI. And he said, "Just because we assassinated him doesn't mean we can't miss him." God, sorry. I I don't know. If FBI that, bad. 
I don't know if that original ending, it's very powerful in the book. I don't know if that would translate to film at all. So I guess it's okay Scorsese, like, took a pot shot at himself and did the whole visual, like, the Osage are still alive in spite of this bullshit ending shot. Beautiful ending shot. Uh, but for a three-and-a-half-hour movie, like, a sort of metatextual ending uh, really runs the risk of putting some people off. Right. And uh, the ending to the relationship, to the core of the story, which is the relationship with Molly Ernest, happens right before this scene. Yeah. When Molly confronts Ernest and basically says, what was in my insulin? Wait. And you th and you're praying, this is like I said, you're screaming. You're screaming at the screen because I don't know about you. I got the impression that if Ernest admitted it and told the truth, Molly would have stayed with him. Yep. I got that impression that... She just wanted him to tell the truth about that. If she could tell the truth about that, I don't know if she would have forgave him, but she could have forgotten. It, you know what I mean? It, it's it's kind of an interesting, like, intersection between uh, this fiction and the reality. Um, because guess what Ernest Burkhart in real life never did? Admit to it, I'm guessing? Yep, it was the one thing he could never admit to. He could not bear the weight of it on his fucking soul. He never confirmed anybody. Like, we don't even know what she was being poisoned with in real life. Because I wanted to know the name of that agent, because I needed to fill the slot in my brain, but he just never gave anybody that satisfaction. And uh, I think Molly, in real life, there was a certain point in the court case uh, where she was just kind of done with this shit. So not right, quite like movie Molly... Uh, but it, it's extremely powerful. It does deliver that same kind of punch that the end of The Irishman had of just watching Ernest just be, you know, completely flub the ball at the end. Where like, they, they had all these scenes, like, shortly beforehand of him and Molly still being fine. Watching him fumble at, that, at the end was punch in the gut. Because, like, you realize that, like, when you realize when he doesn't admit to it that, oh, my God, he didn't actually learn anything. Yeah. He never had a change of heart. He was still ultimately acting in self-preservation and selfishly just wanting to be with his family. Because that's the big question for a lot of the movie is, does he really love Molly above all? And and I get the impression that in Ernest's heart of hearts, at least in the movie, he did love Molly. He's just like, and this is controversial to say, how can you love someone and murder their entire family? It's the banality of evil, I guess. Oh, it's not my wife. It's different. Oh, it's not my wife. It's her friend. Oh, it's not my wife. It's her mother that's old and was going to die soon anyway. Oh, it's not my wife. It's her sister who's a drunk and parades about town and makes everyone's life miserable. It's not my wife. It's and then it is your wife. Yeah, yeah, you're just gradually chiseling that away. I think that that adds a playful kind of like interesting dimension to the part where um King asks him like, "Can you like red?" You know, can you go after, like, Native women? And he goes, I like red, I like white, I like blue. Like, you know, he, he turns it into this sort of, like, yeah, I could go for Native women, and then, like, makes this obvious, like, sort of, like, parallel to America there. That, like, in spite of the love of his wife, he's still this American, uh, this, you know, American guy, and they're always, like, from that time gonna be, like, that fucking barrier between them where he doesn't take her seriously enough as a person, possibly because of you know, self-preservation or maybe inherent racism. Either way, in the end, he falls short and it fucking sucks. And, yeah. And like, it's so heartbreaking because I think Leo does a good job. Now, obviously, again, this is part of people's problems with the movie. Why would she ever marry Ernest in the first place? One, she needed to in order to get her money. Boom. 
But number two, I think Leo does a good job. You see the charmingness of Ernest, you know, like that part where he's like, well, I don't know what you just said, but it must have been Indian for handsome devil. And then she laughs her ass off, which fun fact. Real laugh. Leo, imp Leo improvised that line that is Lily Gladstone actually laughing. Here, somebody out there, I'm commissioning this. Just do it for free for me, please. Um, Just get the Killers of the Flower Moon poster, take out the text, and replace it with the importance of being earnest. Please. <laughs> I'm glad that you just realized that. Like, it took me saying earnest 20 times until I went, oh, hey. <laughs> I know this one. Uh, sort of, uh, uh, one thing, I'm kind of happy about this as, like, sort of a product that exists in our kind of, like, uh, post-2014 social sphere. I hope that this movie can communicate to people who went through the American public school system how ugly and horrible the past really was. In this film, they show newsreel footage from the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, where, like, one of the wealthiest black communities in the United States was firebombed out of existence by a white lynch mob. They show that because it obviously parallels this situation in Oklahoma where white people decided to form the fucking Illuminati instead of just letting Native Americans live prosperous, happy lives. And, th and this same group of plutocratic assholes, high-level bankers, politicians, judges, donors, are still hard at work making sure shit like this does not end up anywhere near high school textbooks. They want you to look at disenfranchised people on the evening news and think they ended up this way because those people are lazy and made bad choices and not realize yeah. the truth is that they were forced into that position over decades by devious first, schemes. Literally the first time in human history, like you just said, the first time in human history that a non-white group of people were the wealthiest in the world and white people, like there, this isn't a joke, literally formed the fucking Illuminati just to make sure it went back into the hands of white folk. They will pull off superhero shit to not disrupt the status quo. It reminds me of on Super Tuesday. Uh, I can't remember which election it was when all those people formed centrist Voltron just to beat Bernie Sanders. Like you ever look out, you ever look out at like public shit and it seems like it's just a bunch of kids pretending to be adults and we can never make complicated structures when we need to. They can make the most complicated shit you could imagine happen to protect the specific status quo. They will pull off miracles to not let Never. that shit get upset. Remember when he won Nevada? Better times. He won Nevada, and we thought, oh, oh, he's taking it. Now, uh, to be somewhat fair to all of that, I uh, specifically about that, I have like a lot of thoughts about the 2020 primaries. Uh, the first of which being, I don't think, it was a definitely like them forming centrist Voltron, but I do think it became obvious at some point that the only people that were ever going to win that primary was either going to be Bernie or Biden. And clearly, if you're a centrist, you consolidate around Biden. That makes sense. I don't think it was like a... It definitely was like... They probably called each other, and I do think Obama made a few phone calls to make it happen. But I don't think it was anything more grand than that. Number two, it is partially the Bernie campaign's fault for their entire campaign strategy to be relying upon being the only good leftist voice like basically being like the entire campaign relied upon Biden, Pete, uh, Klobuchar, everyone fighting for the centrist vote while he got the left wing vote by himself. That's what his strategy relied on. That's a bad strategy. That is a bad campaign strategy, which is why they were able to consolidate around Biden like that. That's not what this movie's about, though. <laughs> An entire statewide conspiracy 
to befriend and bump off the Osage. So, so yeah, to kind of close out the first half, uh, Martin Scorsese has delivered us yet another meditation on bad people doing horrible things. And I've almost got the sense that this 81-year-old Catholic man is trying to atone for something. Long gone are the days of him winning the Golden Palm for a movie about a 4chan terrorist. This is his second film in a row about the banality of evil with a, an utterly punishing runtime. And frankly, I think he's choosing his battles kind of perfectly. What happened to the natives is the original sin of the United States. If we all did something for the natives in our lifetime, this country would be significantly less cursed. So props to him. I hope his soul knows peace. And mad respect for being so technically savvy about the end product. It helps a lot when important films are also good, because then more people want to actually learn the lesson. <laughs> Back to you, Tanner. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, so with that, we're going to take a brief commercial break just so we can get money. I do love that money. I do love that money, sir. <laughs> I do love that money. Welcome back from that brief commercial break for another ad. You see that shit? You see that color shit? Moviepalette.com. Go to it. Add it to your cart. When you go to checkout, you can enter the code SQUAD15 to save 15% or more on cart. God, I, I'm, I'm so tired. I'm tired, boss. Buy how do Movie I keep Palette. Making, how do I keep making the mistake? You save 50% on your order. You call Geico to save 50% on car insurance. Let's talk about something interesting about this movie that I want to point out. The ages of Leonardo DiCaprio and Robert De Niro way do not higher. match the characters they're playing. Yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio's higher. character just got back from World War One. Robert De Niro's character is supposed to be 45, which is younger than what Leo is in real life, I'm pretty sure. Listen, lots of 50-year-olds with beer guts fought in World War One. okay? <laughs> that's true. I just threw that out there, but I think that's another thing to keep in mind about, like, how interesting of a story this all is in real life molly was 10 years older than ernest while uh, in this reality uh he she's 12 years younger than leonardo dicaprio there's one thing i'm pretty sure they had to cut from the movie uh because of robert de niro's age uh this was kind of one of those like crazy things from the book that got left out of the movie um it was said that you know how Anna's discovered to be pregnant. It's kind of a sad moment in the movie. Yeah, like, it's like it's heartbreaking, and it's one of Lily's best moments in the movie. She is my favorite leading performance by an actress all year. By the way, I just want to throw that out there. She was thinking of retiring from acting, and then she got an email being like, "Hey, get on a Zoom meeting with Marty." She my, was thinking of changing careers. My fucking heart! Oh my god, that's beautiful. I hope she never retires until she's old and wants to. She's precisely. such a good actress. Um. Oh. But the moment where she finds out that she was pregnant is so heartbreaking. So there's some talk in the book about whose baby she was pregnant with was King Hale's. She was having a uh, an affair with King Hale, like sleeping with him. The movie so does not go over that at all. King Hale got his own baby killed. <laughs> Mind you. Well, they mildly touch upon it in the movie, I feel like, when... When Leo tells De Niro she was pregnant, I swear to God, Hale goes, I would have sworn I noticed this time. He asked if it was his. I swear to God, he did. I, I don't remember uh, it being touched on in the movie, uh, but it is one of those details from real life where 
big if true. Adds a lot to the horror. Mind you, I think this was one of those things that was, like, passed down as a family secret, so there's no way to fucking verify that this was actually what happened. Uh, but these are from the families involved, uh, so there's a huge possibility that King Hale McMurdered his own son before oh my he was God. in the womb. Oh my fucking, that's horrifying. It's I bad. Mean, they could have done it, and they could have done it. De Niro did just get someone pregnant. Holy shit. Holy shit. Oh so no. Like, I'm having flashbacks to the Golden Globes. Joe Coy. Hey, Barbie, boobs, right? Oppenheimer's really long. Hey. Uh, my career is over. Speaking of award shows, let's discuss why this film is going to win zero Oscars. It's not its fault. It's legitimate. It's like it got unlucky tw <laughs> twice now. Scorsese's got an unlucky two times in a row. Last time there was the cultural phenomenon that was Parasite. And with the only American movie standing a real chance was the brilliant on a technical level 1917. This time it's going to be Christopher Nolan is being basically ordained by God to win the Oscar. <laughs> and God forbid we can't let Barbie go home empty-handed. So, I, You know, if this was directed by Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu, Leo, Leo would win the Oscar. He's only allowed to win Oscars when Inarritu uh, fucking directs. Another reason is, uh, I think the real reason is that Killers made like $156 million worldwide. It didn't even make its production budget back. Uh, meanwhile, you've got fucking Oppenheimer over there, which has to be really tempting for the Academy. Like, the Academy crowd has been wanting to bridge that whole popular movies versus artsy acclaimed movies for, like, years. And they sort of got that with everything everywhere. The Academy doesn't want to look like they live in ivory towers. Uh, they go to bed every night hoping there's a critically acclaimed movie that also sets the box office on fire. And, and they got one with Oppenheimer. Ooh, gigantic cinematic event. Um... Yeah, so I feel really terrible for this film. Like Scorsese, two times in a row, made these $200 million historical epics, and he's just getting fucked. It's it's kind of sad. Uh, but Anyway, I can't wait for Anatomy of a Fall to win Best Picture at the next year's Academy Awards. I, I, would, I would literally shoot myself. I did not... I, why have the Golden Palm winners been lacking as of late? Uh, fucking Triangle of Sadness, same kind of feeling from me. Triangle of Sadness was easily my least favorite of the Best Picture nominees last year. But and I liked it fine, but... If you look at this from a rationing perspective, Scorsese got his statues in 2007 when he won Best Director and Best Picture for The Departed. So he'll die fine. You know, he'll die happy if he doesn't win any more more trophies. Maybe Nolan. Maybe Nolan gets his trophy this year. Who knows? I do think it's Nolan's year to lose, quite frankly. Not just because Oppenheimer is this perfect mix of everyone in America saw it, and also it's a massive, like... It is Christopher Nolan's highest grossing movie that doesn't have Batman in it. Holy shit. That's big. That's big. It grossed more than Interstellar. Holy and fucking everybody saw Interstellar. <laughs> I'll be sweet. We A three-hour biopic made more money than Interstellar. This just shows that America, the bomb, is always on our minds. Yep, and not the type of bomb that exploded uh, the bomb in this movie. Oh, that's a thing in the book. A thing that often gets brought up um, in discussions, comparing the book and the movie a lot. Ernest and Molly's family were, were originally planned to have a sleepover with Bill and Rita the night that their house exploded. Ernest was dead ass, just going to let everybody in his family get blown up all at once. 
The plan was only fucked up because Cowboy, their son, had an earache, and so they all stayed home. That almost wow. happened. Whoa. Well, that kind of eliminates the grayness that Ernest's character has in the movie. Yeah, they had to alter some stuff, you know. Well, again, like I said, in real life, I, I don't know if Ernest loved Molly in real life. After what you just told me, I'm inclined to say no. But movie Ernest, I do think, like I said before, I do think on some level does love Molly and clearly cares about his children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, remember that part at one hour, 22 minutes and 28 seconds where he does the war cry while he's yelling at Lily Gladstone? <laughs> That's a funny bit. I could not this fucking believe funny it. funny parts. I'm not going to lie. The movie is legitimately funny sometimes. Uh, De Niro's goggles got a big laugh in my theater when he's wearing the fucking owl, like, goggles. Oh, I, but then later, did you see that thing where, like, it was basically confirmed that that, like, that was on purpose, the owl goggles? Because there's that line where they're like, oh, the Osage, they think you see an owl when you're about to die. Yep. And then fucking Robert De Niro comes waddling in with the goddamn owl goggles, looking like Night Owl from HBO's Watchmen. He does! Like, and uh, what is it? In the book, the first sentence describing Hale is that he was an owl-faced man. So they kind of set that up for you, too. Like, the first thing they say about Hale in the book. So, mm, good, good CGI owl in this. Yeah, it is a good CGI owl. I agree. Uh, the effects in general are great. Um, and I think it was worth every dollar. And I don't think Apple cared if it made its money back or not, because Apple was interested in having the prestige picture. Uh, remember when we thought this movie was going to be four hours long, though? I forget about those early reports. Was that a threat at one point? Was that like an assembly <laughs> cut or something? The four hour version of this movie? I, I think, well, considering the real movie is three and a half hours long, it might have been pretty legit. I was a little upset that Scorsese didn't give it an intermission. Uh, like, genuinely, like, walking into the movie, because uh, I'd been watching some Bollywood movies, and they're always really good about that, and I was just like, come on. Like, this isn't like, what is this, like, fucking river of fundament bullshit where it's like, nope, you got to sit through three and a half hours. Those of you with weak I, ladders, fuck off. Like, but where do you put the intermission? After the bomb. Or maybe before yeah. the FBI guy shows up. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I will say that when I watched this movie in the theater, I was on the verge of falling asleep. I was having a long day. Yeah. Uh, and I I was, oddly enough, expecting some bad news to come my way. Uh, and then it came my way the next day. Um, so that put me in a bit of a sour mood. So I was like about to be like, and then boom! And I went, aye, aye, Captain, I am never falling asleep again. I'm sorry, Marty. I am so sorry. I, I was unfamiliar with your game. Yeah. That it's like he knew. It's like he knew. That, that bomb was fucking loud in the theater. And believe it or not, uh, when you see Rita dead looking like an angel, just sitting there like untouched by the bomb, that was actually how she was in real life. I thought that was a, a weird detail. In real life, when they found her, she was just angelic as fuck, but the back of her head was missing. Oh. oh, oh, oh. Yeah. I remember watching this movie. I actually wanted to th mm, mm, throw up. I'm trying not to throw up right now. When... De Niro gets there when Hale gets there and he accidentally border he accidentally almost trips over the, the maid's hand. Uh, and the guy's like, Oh yeah, they're still finding pieces of her. So oh. so shitty thing that happened in real life. 
Uh, there were, like, two, like, Undertaker fuckers in the town who ran, like, funeral homes or whatever those are called. And one guy actually bundled up all the pieces they found and tried to charge her family for a normal, like, funeral. Because he gathered a bunch of her pieces and shit. It sucked ass. It sucked fucking shit. Fuck that guy. Reminds me of that scene that kind of shows how empty-headed Ernest is, is when he's yelling at the funeral home director for, like, charging full price for a coffin? Well, sort of. In the book, it's deliberated on better. Um, the funeral people actually did charge Osage prices. Uh, they did overcharge the Osage members of the town by, like, a significant extent. It was, uh, just... Blatant racism. Like, the they, they Osage had, like, their funerals were ten, cost ten times more for the same exact funeral kind of thing. Jesus. But they didn't, like, totally clarify that in the movie. Uh, Tanner, do you think this was shot on film or digital? Uh, digital, right? I thought it was shot on digital. It, it shot on film. Trick question, it's both. Oh, wait, what? Yeah, baby. So to get the sort of natural look, they got the 50 ISO films for like super bright daylight scenes with the Osage. And they had 250 ISO film for less bright daytime scenes and like daylight exteriors and 500T for the nighttime interiors with dun tungsten lighting. Basically, the thought was for the scenes with the Osage, they wanted it to look natural and nice. So they used film, right? But the, another interesting thing they did with film, so you know the newsreel footage, the old-timey-looking shit, right? Yeah. So they they did, they shot that on Eastman X. but what, what they did was they shot it on Martin Scorsese's 1917 Bell & Howell 2709 camera. A camera from 1917. You have to hand-crank this thing. So they actually hand-cranked that. That is sick as hell. It fucking owns. Uh, but... but Ooh, what was shot digitally then? Uh, for the low-light scenes that take place at, like, the butt crack of dawn, they shot on a Venice 2. Because Kodak, their most sensitive film stock they sell right now is, like, 500 ISO. While the Venice 2 can shoot at 3,200 uh, 3, or 3,200 ISO without having to digitally boost the signal. They just, there were technical limitations to what they could shoot on film. There's okay. Actually, there's actually a really good video uh, video about this. The channel is called In-Depth Cine, and uh, they, the video is called Mixing Film and Digital of Killers of the Flower Moon. It's got cool visuals and, like, a breakdown of the LUTs that they used. So go check it out if this interests you. I, I love that video. That is fascinating. I, I would have assumed it was all shot on film um, because, to be fair, basically most of it was. They, they, um, they wanted that nice natural look for the Osage and then that shitty digital look when the, the Europeans were there. So let's talk about um, a character that I remember when the movie first came out. I didn't see it for like a week. I was busy for that week. Right. And there was a specific character whose appearance in the movie, everyone was like, this is so stupid and goofy. Uh, they're talking about Brendan Fraser's big, boisterous, the second Ernest Rickout's about to testify, he goes, This man is my client! <laughs> and I'm laughing, but it's only because big shot lawyers just actually acted like that. That was just, that's what they did. They were, lawyers are drama queens. <laughs> I, I loved it. I couldn't believe that they waited that long to give us something that good. It was beautiful. It's just like, oh yeah, in, in the, in the fucking, in the ninth inning or whatever, we're throwing a home run. Like, I could not believe they saved Brendan Fraser for that late in the film. Last year's best actor winner. 
you stupid boy. Like, and he had good lines too. <laughs> Every line delivery was perfect. They beat you. They beat you. Because, I mean, like, the FBI really had everybody. The film has you convinced that, like, everybody's fucked and we're going to see justice. They needed this larger-than-life asshole to convince you that anything was going to go wrong after the FBI started catching people. Because in real life, that lawyer was a fucking problem. The court case dragged on and almost, like, got Tom White fired and did not, like, almost nobody got convicted. Uh, so it's good that they had a big noticeable person like Brendan Fraser to communicate like, oh, these white bastards still have a trick up their sleeve, you know? Yeah, and then like, I don't know. So Ernest did testify in real life, right? That's like part of the whole thing. Now, my question did, did he briefly, like, did the actual sequence of events happen like that? Like he was literally about to testify in court and then the lawyer started screaming at him? Yes, exactly like that. And then his daughter That's... died... His daughter died and he decided to testify. That's how it happened in real life. Because even though I think the movie makes it very clear that his daughter did die of natural causes, I think it's interesting, at least in the movie, the, the thing that clearly convinces him is that he can't make himself 100% believe Hale had nothing to do with it. Yeah, and this is a huge part of, like, the generational trauma of, like, living Osage people, because uh, this was also during Prohibition, is so many people were poisoned. There was so much strychnine going around that a lot of, like, deaths by natural causes, like wasting disease, too, could have just been poisoned. So not only do a lot of people not know who killed their ancestors, but there are a lot of people who have to worry, like, their ancestors who might have supposedly died of natural or normal causes were, were legitimately poisoned. Yeah. Like Molly almost was. Jesus. Uh, this movie hurts. This movie hurts you when you watch it. You feel like, you just feel shitty. Yeah, it's, um, like, that was what, I just, I cannot emphasize enough how different the world was a hundred years ago, and how important it is that we accurately depict how bad it used to be back then, so we don't accidentally slip into that state again. Like, the movie is so abhorrent, like, the things that are being depicted is obviously so abhorrent, and yet from what you're telling me, it almost seems like it was more comically evil in real life. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately it was. And we could go back there. We could get exactly back into this place. A bunch of people are probably going to be displaced by climate change. There's going to be a big refugee crisis because the oceans are going to fucking take out a bunch of states. And they're going to convince us that those refugees are subhuman. And next thing you know, we'll be the ones fucking blowing up people's houses. Like, they could do this Hell again. Hell yeah, brother. They, they could do this again if we fucking let them. If we forget that this used to happen. That we are Hear me out. of this. Hear me out. It's okay if they voted for Ron DeSantis. It's okay if they voted for DeSantis. Of course. <laughs> if they're the reason why he's the governor of Florida, we're allowed to explode their homes. The, the, the general exploit is if these people control the news and they control the police and they have doctors on their sides, they could like lurk in the shadows and do this shit again. You just have to pay people in the correct positions off kind of thing. For all we know, and obviously it'd be on a much smaller scale, this could still be happening to communities across the country right now. Uh, fun fact, it did keep happening to the Osage until the oil money dried up. Like, the, the, like, Osage kept dying after Hale was arrested, and then there was this big dip in, like, how much the price of oil from Oklahoma started costing. I can't remember if it was, like, in the Great Depression or not, but it, it did dry up. Like, they, 
did run out of all this oil money, and then magically, they stopped getting murdered. Who would have thought? Wow. Yeah, it sucks. We should have known that with all this money would start coming some problems. It's... Fuck. I, I, I'm having trouble articulating what more I want to say. How well do you mm. remember the promotional materials for this film? Remember the trailers were sick as hell. I, I This is one of those movies where I think the trailers... We're almost forced to sell you an inaccurate representation of the film. Oh, yeah. You think you these movies do not give you the impression that Ernest is the bad guy at all? No, sir. Like, my husband really locked in on the Paul Red Eagle line where he says, we're still warriors. That that often gets juxtaposed with that scene of Henry Roan, like, molly-whopping Roy Bunch, and the shot of Anna firing her gun in the air. Like, Yeah, you think there's going to be more fighting. Instead, no, they just keep getting murdered. The trailers create the impression this is going to be like warring mafia gangs kind of situation where like the white people land a murderous blow and then the Osage retaliate violently. I mean, they've got Stadium Powwow by Lucy Nation playing in trailer one. Like it's going to be this cool ass ongoing standoff. But in reality, it's mostly just a film about the Osage getting completely fucked over. And like the Henry Roan thing, it's great you brought that up. We haven't really touched upon that. That's another thing that Hale was apparently repeatedly doing that we don't really talk about that much is that he was taking out insurance policies, life insurance policies against the Osage people and then killing them. Or in the case of Henry Roan, at least for a while, just trying to lightly push him along to just eventually committing suicide until, yeah. oh shit, this guy was married to Molly. We should just get rid of this problem real quick. Yeah, I, I think from the book, uh, he had done that more than once. Which is a serious Oh, the, uh, with how casual he was with it in the movie. Because, like, when he does it with the Henry Roan, the doctor's, like... I remember the doctor goes, It's gonna be hard for me to justify this one, William. <laughs> Another uh, clearly, clearly indicating this is not the first time he's done this. Another shocking moment in a similar vein is when Casey or whatever, the long-faced man, has his two Native American kids... And uh, he takes them in. Oh, oh my God. And asks for and, legal advice. Like, if I adopt these people and they die, will I get their head rights? And the guy across from him isn't a total bonehead and is like, Casey, I think that you're adopting these children just so you can murder them. <laughs> like, no, literally, Casey goes, like, Casey says that, and then the lawyer goes, Casey, you realize that saying that is indicating to me you intend to adopt and murder these children? And then Casey says the most, it's infuriating. Not if it's illegal. And not if I don't get the money. <laughs> yeah, that guy was a uh, a huge piece of shit. That was that scene was fucking shocking. People did laugh in my theater because at least like unlike with the oh, Henry I giggled. Roan I couldn't thing, help it. It was absurd. They're kids. But I'm sure that was like those were real life words. I mean, you see that in the movie. Like one of the opening scenes in the movie is like the mom attending to her baby. And then this guy just, like, opens the window and shoots her. You remember that? Yeah, and then he comes out and grabs the baby. Yeah, that was that was a fucking... That's when, like, there's a couple moments in the film where the gears shift. Like, Leo talking to that guy by the cave after they did, like, a crime thing. But that moment when that guy shot that lady out the window, my audience got went from, like, quiet to quieter somehow. Like, somehow it's like you could hear a... You could hear a pin drop, and now it's... You could hear the atoms moving. <laughs> Somebody, somebody, like, everybody collectively, like, stopped inhaling at that moment. You, like, yeah, you can't help it, because it's so... I don't know what more I can say. 
it's it's incredibly upsetting. It's an incredibly powerful film. Like, this happened. This happened. And somehow it's only the seventh worst thing to happen to the Osage people. Let's do trivia, guys. Trivia! George Clooney wanted to direct a movie based off of this book for years before Martin got to it. Ah! Instead, George Clooney's this mo- George Clooney's movie this year was about a group of people that rode so hard it killed Adolf Hitler. <laughs> I think that's what that movie's about, right? I don't know. The boys in the boat. God damn it. Um, Robbie Robertson, who did the score for this movie, uh, did a fantastic job. He clearly collaborated with the Osage people to make something faithful to their culture. Uh, this is his last bit of music he's ever done for a movie because he died two months before the movie came out. It's a great way to go out. Good note to go out on. This is the third movie to be made about the Osage Nation murders. The FBI story, right? That the FBI story film. in 1959. And then in 1926, there were the tragedies of the Osage Hills, which to put it in perspective, would be like making uh, that Charlie Sheen 9-11 movie in 2007. <laughs> Holy shit, the audacity of Hollywood. <laughs> Yeah, they made a movie about this shit quick. Just to back away from trivia from this movie, I think we talked about this before. The most fascinating thing about this is that the book is the mystery and the movie's not. Yeah. Yeah, it it definitely takes you on a different path to discovering, like, what's going on and what the scheme is. I I almost wish I had read the book first uh, because Scorsese did a really good job of capturing most of the interesting stuff that's in the book. The only thing that he like left out was that thing about Anna being pregnant with King's kid. And there's this lawyer who gets thrown off a train. And I guess the whole like third part of the book that reveals a lot of the other murderers who got away with it. But like reading the book after seeing the movie, a lot of it was just me being like, yeah, I know. I know. Hurry up. Get to the point. Uh, This is the most expensive R rated movie ever made. What? Uh, apparently, the Irishman's official budget was only $159 million, uh, and the only other one more expensive than the Irishman until now was the last Matrix movie at $190 million. I want my Matrix 3 money. I am shocked. I want my Matrix 4 money. I, I am shocked. I did not know that this was the showgirls of R-rated movies. Yeah, little did you know. Uh, mostly, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio got $30 million, so that's partially why. Uh, Jesse Plemons turned down Nope to do this movie. Good. He was going to be the Stephen Yun character. For the best, because Stephen Yun is so good in that movie. Yeah, yeah, this worked out fine. You know, I I got this movie mixed up with Devil in the White City for a long time. Because uh, Scorsese's been trying to adapt Devil in the White City since like 2010. So when I heard Killers of the Flower Moon was coming out, I was like, finally! You know, that old-timey murder movie he's been trying to make. And then well, eventually, it was an old-timey murder movie. When somebody clarified the difference, I was like, hey, wait, that's about a murder town, not a murder house. What's going on here? Yeah. 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 This is his first time working with John Lithgow. Cool. Which is cool. Apparently, Lithgow's been wanting to work with him for, like, so fucking long. Um... <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio was spanked with a real wooden paddle at full strength by Robert De Niro for the scene where Ernest is given corporate punishment. However, he was wearing protective padding. I can't fucking believe it. Well, you know, 30 million buys you a lot. (laughs) I'm so happy. 
Somebody needed to spank him for what he's been fucking doing with his dating life. I'm glad De Niro hopefully knocked some sense into him. Lily Gladstone lost 30 pounds over two weeks during the scenes in which Molly is bedridden and poisoned by going on a strict vegan diet during filming. That's some fucking Christian Bale Marvel movie shit. Holy fuck. Yeah, that must have been extremely unpleasant. Oh my god. I didn't, the sad thing is I didn't notice like the weight change that much. Like it wasn't like a Travis Bickle is suddenly ripped moment. Probably because he's, she's, she's always under blankets. Um, also, Martin Scorsese pointed out that apparently during the radio scene, I didn't realize this at the time, um, when they start talking about things such as William Hale's death in 1962, that doesn't really make sense because that scene looks like it takes place in the 40s at best. Yeah. Yeah, because, uh, yeah. So it's like the modern day audience starts getting addressed. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's the Lucky Strike radio hour that exists outside of time. I, I don't... It's, that's a Twilight Zone episode. Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, final thoughts. Go ahead, Austin. At a time when we're starting to see a deliberate push for more indigenous people in TV with stuff like Reservation Dogs, Echo, True Detective Night Country, it does feel like we're beginning the long overdue process of including this group of people who were fucking here on this land before we even showed up. And uh, there's been... Such an effort by our forefathers to exterminate these people, to decimate their culture and erase them from history, that it's terribly important that we make some popular movies that shine a light on these moments in our past. It's been a popular line since this movie released at the end of October that it would be better to have native filmmakers who could be handed $200 million so they can tell stories like this. Uh, but if that person apparently doesn't exist in the Hollywood studio system yet... I think that Martin Scorsese is about as good of an alternative as you could hope for. The dark side of history of this country has to be exposed. As the final line of the book puts it, the blood cries out from the ground. I don't think I could put it better myself. Um, really, everything he said, it's an interesting question about whether or not it's really Martin Scorsese's right to make this. But if a Native American was never going to be given this money, I'm hard-pressed to say that Marty did a bad job. Right. And uh, Lily Gladstone for Oscar, please. Um, and that's it for this episode of Bomb Squad Matinee. I'm not going to make any silly joke here at the end because I, I don't think it would feel proper given the subject matter. Uh, but thank you for listening slash watching. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you're listening on any of the audio platforms we're on, go ahead, give us five stars. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, how about you mosey on down over to our Patreon, throw us a couple bucks. And uh, while you're here on YouTube, how about you go down in the comment section below and let me know. Uh, what did you think of Killers of the Flower Moon? What do you think of, have you read the book? How do you think the book compares to the movie? While you're there, uh, click the like button so you know how much, so we know how much you like us. Hit the subscribe button so we know how much you love us. And hit the bell icon so you know exactly when we upload new videos. Thank you again so much for watching. Tune in next week when we talk about the newest Yogos Lathamos film, uh, Poor Things which should hopefully be a bit of a change in pace. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you again for watching. We'll see you then.